Welcome everyone. I'm Dr. Justin Arner from the Stedman Clinic and Stedman Philippon Research Institute in Vail, Colorado. Today I have the distinct privilege of speaking with my mentor and someone who really needs no introduction, Dr. Matthew T. Preventure, Surgeon and Fellowship Director at the Stedman Clinic and Stedman Philippon Research Institute in Vail, Colorado and Captain in the U.S. Navy. Dr. Preventure was the author of the paper entitled, Glenoid Tract Instability Management Score, Radiographic Modification of the Instability Severity Index Score, which was published in the January 2020 edition of the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome, Dr. Preventure, and thank you for joining me. Justin, thank you. It's a great privilege to be here with you this morning. Great. Let's get right to it. Could you first describe what inspired you to take a look at modifying the Instability Severity Index Score, and also briefly describe your new proposed glenoid tract instability management score. How are those scores really different? Well, first of all, I am deeply indebted to my co-authors, including Dr. Giovanni Di Giacomo, who's an outstanding shoulder surgeon in Rome, Italy, uh, his partner, Dr. Pugliese, and then also my co-authors and research collaborators at the Stedman Philippon Research Institute. We had been working for quite some time on trying to improve, which we thought was already a very good start to helping us understand instability severity better. Dr. Below and others published the Instability Severity Index Score, which utilized multiple factors, including plain radiographs and patient characteristics, such as whether they played a contact sport, to determine whether or not they should receive an open Latterjee type of procedure or be better off with arthroscopic based on overall outcomes of instability. One of the things we saw was that although the radiographs were good to look at initially, we are really in 2019 and 2020 and beyond utilizing much higher level of imaging including MRI and CT scan to truly grade what is going on on both sides of the joint including glenoid bone loss and the hill sacs. So basically we have proposed a modified grading scheme that takes the same four radiographic points for plain radiographs and extrapolates those to a higher end imaging to grade the hill sacs and glenoid bone loss. It really makes a lot of sense. Could you briefly describe for our listeners the on-track versus on-track concept and how you calculate it and really most importantly how you use it clinically in your practice? Yeah, again, we are thankful to Professor Itoi and Yamamoto out of Japan for helping bring this concept to the forefront, which has been now further modified by Dr. Giacomo as well as Dr. Steve Burkhart from San Antonio, Texas. With this, we now have a better understanding of this bone loss problem counts on both sides. It's a pretty simple concept in that it's easier to have an instability event if you have bone loss both on the glenoid and on the humeral side, meaning glenoid bone loss and hill sacs. And it's even more important as we get deeper into this, how these two bony lesions interact to produce an instability event. Let's get more specific into the nuts and bolts of your results. One really interesting point I found in this study was that the average instability severity index score in patients treated with your new glenoid tract instability management score was roughly one point lower. And therefore, the new score that you found would tend to recommend for less coracoid transfer procedures. What are your thoughts regarding that? Are we doing too many ladder J's? You know, anytime we use, I think, a new classification and grading score, we have to be mindful of how it is extrapolated 
certainly in this point, worldwide. The journal has worldwide reach. Uh, the publication from Burkhardt and Giacomo has uh, global implications, and we have to be careful about how this applies to specific patient populations. I do think that when we look just at radiographic parameters, those are pretty consistent globally. And, and one of the things we really wanted to try to tighten up was get a higher level imaging system to help use those four points from the instability severity score to try to better predict how patients did after Latterjay or arthroscopic procedure. Because of that and because of using, I think, a better grading system and higher end imaging, we were able to overall come up with what the cohort had was a lower score by about one point, which was from 2.9 down to 1.9 on the instability severity index score. This allowed us to, at least in our mind, and Dr. Giacomo and his colleagues' patients to really test this principle of on and off track based on what higher end imaging looked like to see how these patients did. And overall, the outcomes were very good. So would you say, are we just really getting fooled by the x-rays and really the advanced imaging is the key? So are we just getting fooled by the x-rays? I think we're just better at measuring bone loss now in 2020 and using high-quality MRI or CT scan to measure what's going on in a bipolar fashion, extrapolating whether or not this is on or off track based on the measurements is, I think, a good thing for us to help decide who truly needs a Latterjay procedure. I don't think everyone needs a Latterjay, and certainly if you look at some of my former populations that I took care of, like the military, they would all have a high instability severity index score in almost everyone just by their job, who they were, the plain radiograph score that was initially developed, almost every single one of those would qualify for a Latterjay based on the instability severity score recommendations. And we know that's just not the case. So you'd really say that it's more than just one score, another score imaging. It's really individualized treatment is the key. Yeah, no question. And that's the art of medicine and the beauty of orthopedics is how do we best determine what procedure fits our patients. That's what's fun about it. This helps us. It helps put us in a framework, but there's not one size fits all here. We still have to do medicine and take care of the individual patient based on their overall demands, their goals, and what they're going to go back to on top of looking at the radiographic parameters, which can certainly guide you down a certain path. Another interesting finding I thought in your study was that your inter-rater reliability was very good when measuring on versus off-track lesions, but was much lower when we evaluated the x-rays, which is what we do in the instability severity index score. Do you think the 3D CTs or even advanced imaging MRI are the big benefit? And second, do you recommend getting CTs on your instability patients? And I know you also obtain contralateral shoulder CTs. Are you doing that as well? So for the most part, I think we're getting to the point where a high-quality MRI will suffice. It gives you a really nice view of the rotator cuff footprint so you can measure easily how that relates to on and off track. You need to see where the rotator cuff attaches to be able to truly measure from what Etoy first put together in a cadaveric model and now has been extrapolated to a radiographic model 
to measure the on and off track. CT scan can certainly help guide you and look at depth of lesion, and we love the three-dimensional CT with the humeral head digitally subtracted. But I think we're to the point now where we can get unilateral high-quality MRI or even just a unilateral uh, high-quality CT scan, three-dimensional with the humeral head digitally subtracted, so you can look at both individually to do some pretty simple measurements in clinic. I also found it really interesting that recurrence rates after arthroscopic bank cut repair were no different when using your new glenoid tract instability management score or the instability severity index score. That was 8 versus 4.5%. But almost all recurrences were in patients less than 19 years old or in contact athletes. In these young contact athletes, are you sometimes more aggressive with a ladder J or even an open bank cart, even if their score would recommend an arthroscopic repair? Yeah, Justin, you know, that's a great point. I think in these young contact athletes, certainly under the age of 20, if they're in a contact or more of an aggressive sport, we're certainly more aggressive about recommending a ladder J type of procedure. But we can still use the radiographic parameters and, and sort out some of these patients because, again, not all of these patients need a ladder J. And if you have a first-time instability event and really no bone loss, a very clean labral tear. I know there are many that would say just with a one-time instability event, maybe maybe two or less, that you're going to get a great outcome even in this challenging cohort with arthroscopic instability repair. Another interesting finding I thought was that the recurrence rate was 9.1% in patients who would have gotten an arthroscopic bank cut repair based on your new scoring system but a ladder J based on the instability severity index score. What are your thoughts regarding this? Is that recurrence rate an acceptable number based on the complications that are known with a ladder J? Yeah, what's interesting is the more you dig into this and we look at the worldwide literature over more than 50 years of the ladder J procedure being around, let's face it, the ladder J is a very good procedure, but it's not perfect. And when you truly look at the recurrences, even in well done series from outstanding surgeons, the recurrent subluxation rate or recurrent instability rate, depending on how you define it, can be quite high. And there are some series that are 7%, 9%, 12%, 14% of recurrent instability after a ladder J. There are other series that have 2 3 4%. So we really have to, I think, do a better job at truly seeing how this ladder J performs long-term. Certainly there are other concerns we have about the latter J. So we want to be careful about recommending it, but certainly not hesitate at all when it's needed because it's a, it's a very well-done procedure. But the literature, when you really scrutinize it, shows that the latter J is, is not perfect and that recurrence rate is in the high single digits to low double-digit uh, recurrence rate. Along the same lines, I noticed the way you defined recurrence maybe has a lot to do with this in this study. You defined it by a subluxation or dislocation episode. Can you comment on the importance of how recurrence is defined in the literature as it really seems to vary greatly? Yeah, Justin, you hit on one of uh, certainly my favorite topics is uh, what we put in the literature matters and how we translate outcome into a conclusion statement in the journal also matters. All of that comes back to the definition of instability here, and it could be dislocation or subluxation. 
we have to do a better job collectively at reporting truly what's going on. This was the subluxation rate. This was the dislocation rate. This was the overall rate to truly know what's happening in a procedure. If you look historically, that number hasn't always been reported, so we really don't know what's going on. And certainly the subluxation rate is always much higher than a dislocation rate. And we've actually published on this looking at the high variability in outcomes just based on how you define instability. It's, it's pretty dramatic, the difference in your outcome. Another really interesting result was that patients with arthroscopically treated shoulders based on the ISIS score had significantly worse outcomes than those treated arthroscopically according to your new score. Why do you think that is? Are we missing some borderline off-track lesions just based on the x-rays when we're doing the ISIS score calculation? I think at this point in 2020, we're, I think, truly beyond what we can measure arthroscopically. It's really hard to use a calibrated probe and decide what's going on if you're going to really scrutinize what's going on in bone loss on the shoulder. That being said, it can help you from interoperative decision-making, how the shoulder behaves, whether or not you can dislocate it or sublux it under anesthesia. It might change your mind on on what you do and whether or not you can easily engage the shoulder. When you go back to Burkhardt's original work, even if you just had the ability to engage the shoulder, that was a significant event for just predicting whether or not you had an inverted paraglenoid. And he showed that to be highly significant. And then that may or may not change your procedure, but certainly gets you to look at it much closer. So we're also at a point, not to confuse this even further, but what if you have a near track lesion and you're close, your measurements are so close from what's going on in the glenoid to the humeral head and your measurements that you come out to are are very close. What if you have with these near track lesions? We're getting a little bit better at that, but anytime you introduce more discrete ability to do measurements, there's always a middle ground and a middle area that's going to be tough to deliver what exactly that patient needs. That's why it comes back to the art again and determining what your patient is truly about, what they want to get back to, and picking the best procedure for them. Let's take a step back. In 2020, how does Dr. Matthew Preventure use the on versus off track concept in the practice? Justin, I think it's very important. I use, just from a radiographic standpoint, a high quality MRI. And we measure the on and off track, do some pretty basic quick math in the clinic to see if we're on or off track. If it's close or a near track, We have to really be careful and think about what's going on with the patient, what their goals are, and where they want to go. But I I do use it to help decide whether arthroscopic versus some type of open repair is justified. The open repair also includes open bank heart, not just a latter So really my first decision point is whether we're going to do this arthroscopically, whether it's on track or off track. Certainly the uh, on track lesion being much better for that. And then uh, if you're off the tracks, you're always uh, much worse and having a much higher level of problem. So that will switch me up to either an open bank heart procedure or a ladder J procedure, but just based on very simple measurements. 
if it's a tweener or if it's close, then you know we really get back to more patient factors, what their goals are, what their age are, what sport they're going back to, and patients under the age of in 20, maybe 25, if they're really still competing in, in high weekend warrior athletics and doing contact athletics, uh, then I'll switch to an open or latter-j type of procedure. To wrap this up, what would you say the main takeaways of this article would be? That is, what do you really want our readers and listeners to know and take away from this great article that you put out? Well, again, thanks. And I want to thank my co-authors for really assembling all the data and putting this all together uh, in, in a team effort. It's it's a lot of work to put something like this together, and I'm, I'm deeply indebted to all of them. I do think what we would say is that we are getting better in 2020. We do know that bone loss is a bipolar problem. We think that the on and off track concept can be further extrapolated to uh, instability, severity, patient factors, and we think that's a good thing to allow you as the clinician and the person working with a patient with that shared decision-making to decide what is best for your specific patient. We really want this to be as easy as possible. I think we've got more uh, easier ways to do this down the road, so stay tuned. We want to make it uh, easy to say yes or no or go down path one or path two, meaning arthroscopic versus an open type of procedure. But we uh, feel that this is getting us into a higher level of imaging that we're all utilizing currently in our clinic, but putting the score all together to help us decide for our patients better. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us today, Dr. Preventure. I would also like to thank you on behalf of our listeners for excellent and dynamic teaching from the podium, as well as your always high quality and novel research that really advances the field. Uh, Justin, it's a great pleasure, and I appreciate uh, my team. It's certainly a team effort, and I appreciate uh, Dr. Lubowitz, uh, Deborah Vinoy, and the journal, and all the editors for doing such a great job with arthroscopy. It's really, uh, truly leading the way in our field, and it's a a great pleasure and honor to be uh, published in this journal. Thank you. Dr. Preventure's article entitled, Glenoid Track Instability Management Score, Radiographic Modification of the Instability Severity Index Score, can be found in the January 2020 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal or online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you for joining us.